Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my partner in crime, my fellow endovascular trauma specialist, a great trauma surgeon, a great intensivist, Dr. Rishi Kundi. And today, we're going to talk about kind of a, a quick talk on a very broad and topic you can get really down in the weeds on, too, if you want to. And that's in the trauma setting. How do we manage deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and how what's the role of IVC filters? The trauma popula- population has always seemed to me be, to be pretty unique. Rishi, uh, when it comes to DVTP risk, and the literature out there doesn't always fit neatly into uh, trauma applications. The coagulation system we know is altered by the response to injury in some unique ways. The most ill are certainly subjected to stasis in their hospital beds, and er- early mobilization is a common challenge. And to boot, we often administer uh, things to them that have at least the potential to increase the risk of DVTP, including FFP, platelets, plasma concentrates, and even transexamic acid more contemporarily. So, so with regards to TXA in particular, let's start with that one. This risk of TXA administration actually confuses me a bit, and I am familiar with this literature. So CRASH-2 did not really emphasize an increased risk for DVT, but they did not have a real screening protocol, and we both know the impact of those protocols in detecting DVT. Uh, on the other hand, the MATTERS military study, or the military experience with TXA, which I am more familiar with, Dr. Morrison, uh, our other partner, and I both worked on that, it did show an increased risk of DVT and non-fatal PE, albeit this was a retrospective study and blast mechanisms certainly that predominated there were different um, than the typical trauma mechanisms. There are also several recent studies suggesting that even for patients requiring pelvic surgical intervention after trauma, at least in the civilian setting, it did not increase risk. So what's your perspective on TXA use and increased DVT or PE risk? And uh, what's, what's the realities on the ground about it? Not just, I'll ask you, not just TXA, but what about PCCs and other novel agents in the pipeline? How do we change our practice to account for these adjuncts? Well, Joe, I think one of the ways in which trauma patients are a very specific population with regard to DVTPE is that hypoperfusion and stasis in the patient who has lost blood volume is a much bigger factor. And so if if I'm asking myself, do I want to give TXA to a patient or do I want to let them bleed out until they have de novo PEs in the, the periphery of their lungs, give them the TXA. Um, I, I absolutely do not think that concern for VTE should stop someone from giving TXA when appropriate. Um, however, both, I think it was CRASH-2 and some subsequent uh, literature, found that if you administer TXA past a certain window, then your instance of thromboembolic events of all strike, arterial and venous, it, it goes up. And that's kind of one of the other things that makes the trauma population unique, is that it's not that trauma patients are all hypocoagulable. It's that they're hypocoagulable, sure, and they're consumptive, and then they become hypercoagulable, and then maybe they be- go into DIC. They're extremely dynamic. Yeah. And it's challenging. It, it's very challenging. And so for me, uh, the approach should be stop the bleeding first. And if they go on to develop a DVT or PE, that is something, that's one of those bridges we can cross when we get to it. 
Yeah, same too for kind of the PCCs and other novel agents. I think anything, if you're trying to stop bleeding, is the primary priority up front. And TXA, at least on based on crash two, shows a survival benefit in that regard. I think you deal with what you deal with in live patients rather than have avoid complications and potentially dead ones. That's kind of my take on it. I, I would agree completely. I think the big takeaway from crash two and from from matters is the mortality benefit and realizing that that mortality benefit takes into account, you know, the PE, the DVT, everything else. So DVT is interesting to me because I, I really don't think we have a good grasp on, because screening protocols are not uniform and ubiquitous to practice. Nobody knows what the ideal screening for DVT is. Um, what? Let's talk about protocols a little bit. Do you think they're useful and when and how should you use them? When I say protocols, I mean like every time on day, a week after injury, you get a screening, you get a week and then two weeks out, you have it on regular intervals for all your trauma patients. Is that useful? I think that the bigger underlying question is more, what is the significance of a DVT that you just happen to find? Um, the screening protocols that have been implemented do discover an increased number of DVTs. These are almost always, uh, at least in a majority of, of uh, instances, isolated below knee um, clots. And we can talk about whether or not we should even be treating them. My opinion is generally no, particularly with trauma patients who are past their, their first day or two. Uh, and have no additional provoking factors. So now we're saying, okay, if we have a surveillance protocol, we're gonna pick up a bunch of clot that we probably aren't going to treat. And so I, I really don't think that that's, that an aggressive screening protocol is going to make a difference in anything but increasing the denominator of patients who you find who have incidental thrombus. Let's say we are, we do have a, we develop a population say, you know, this subset of patients, we are going to develop a screening protocol or we're, we're going to develop at least a, a modality to look for DVT to change our practice patterns. A lot of them include D-dimer, right, as initial screening tool. Is that useful in the trauma setting as, as you understand it? Uh, in the initial presentation, no. Um, in, if you trend them, uh, there, there is at least one uh, paper out of Japan that has shown that if D-dimer consistently increases, it's worth looking for a DVT. Um, but overall, I don't think I don't think I've ever made a clinical decision based on a D-dimer. Okay, so you typically follow that with an ultrasound, a duplex ultrasound. What are the limitations of duplex ultrasound? What do they miss? What's the clinical utility in the trauma setting? In the trauma setting, your highest risk patients for DVT are unable to get an effective duplex, which are the long bone fractures who have an X fix on, someone with actual extremity trauma. Those are patients you can't do the duplex on. Um, so that's the single biggest limitation right there. Those patients are inherently incredibly high risk. Um, it's, it's interesting, when I was a vascular surgeon alone, I used to gripe about orthopedic trauma patients getting the consult. Can you put an IVC filter in this patient um, almost immediately after they were getting their X fix or while they were doing the X fix? 
and I used to grumble because uh, these soft indications putting these filters in. Now that I've had the opportunity to see things from both sides, um, I can see that that absolutely is a sensible thing. These are patients you can't easily screen. Uh, they are patients who lose a significant amount of blood from their fractures, who you can't easily therapeutically anticoagulate. These are patients who should be getting filters. And if you get the filters in, then you can relax a little bit more about screening for DVT. Um, and you don't have quite the sense of, of urgency, knowing that you have a little bit of a, a safety net in place. Well, and I, DBT, at least it's always been taught to me, and I didn't really understand this until I'd done vascular fellowship, like yourself as well, that it really misses those deep ones. I mean, you really can't see the the, pro, the distal external iliac ones, the ones that are really going to come back right. and haunt you in a bad way if they break loose and, and move. So before we get into filters a little bit, um, even in treating with pharmacologic management, right? So not everybody goes straight to a filter necessarily. There are certainly more of those areas in the trauma setting where that's the case. But in a changing landscape of agents and modalities that we have available to manage DVT, what, gui what guidelines do you use as a tool? I mean, there's a lot of them out there. Most of them are developed not specifically for trauma patients. The one that comes to mind for me is the American Co College of Cardiology guidelines, but that was updated last time in 2017, what do you use or advise as the optimal management of acute DVT in the trauma setting from a guideline perspective? Honestly, everything is, in my mind, the same as a starting place. Uh, I have always gone by the chest guidelines myself, um, but my practice have, has evolved because I don't think I've ever met a trauma or even a surgical patient that Remember, these guidelines were developed, the DVT-PE in-hospital development of deep vein thrombosis. This was developed because of vigilance in the medical population. Yeah. Yeah. Prophylaxis came along uh, for patients who had extended inpatient medical stays. And that's not to, to denigrate the findings or the data there at all, but simply that surgical and trauma patients I regard much more on a case-by-case -case basis. And so, yeah, I'll use the CHEST guidelines or the ACC guidelines as a jumping-off place, and sometimes they're totally appropriate. Someone comes in with a catheter-based infection or a catheter-based thrombus, they get three months, they had a provoking factor, come back, we'll duplex you, and possibly go from there. But with regard to is, is full therapy anticoagulation appropriate in this patient, does this patient need something more, that is much more a, an informed judgment call. Um, and I use the guidelines as a place to start, but I really talk to the, the, the primary trauma team, um, the people who have seen the injuries who know the patient much better. Yeah, so let's talk about a few of those caveats, kind of jumping on things that we hadn't, uh, I hadn't thought about until just now that, we, that really are kind of controversial. One, you mentioned briefly those, that isolated DVT in the perineal vein, right? So, or the anterior tibial vein. Is that the same as a common femoral DVT? Do you treat it the same? Is it the same risk? How do you manage that? Uh, it is not the same. It is not the same. We know that it's not the same risk. Um, based on the patient's risk profile for bleeding, we treat, don't treat. For me, the hazard of a below-the-knee isolated thrombus is not that it is going to become a PE. We know that that is a much, much less likely outcome than more proximal. It's that it's going to propagate. So very often I will not treat 
but will get a repeat duplex. And then if there's any sign of propagation, even if it remains in the same vein, then we would consider anticoagulation. And what about the line? There's also discussion that's often debated, and there's some kind of small, confusing literature about line-related DVTs. Are those, do you treat those the same as de novo DVTs? You talked about this whole provoke versus unprovoked thing, but isn't trauma in general, aren't they always provoked DVTs? I would consider them provoked DVTs. That's, that's why I, am, I give myself a little bit of a margin about long-term anticoagulation um, with these patients. As far as lines, uh, not only am I more willing to say just take the line out and, anti- and reduplex, and if it doesn't resolve, we can do something about it, but uh, there are times if the patient is, for instance, uh, TPN dependent and the line's been in and he's a terrible access that I'll say, okay, leave the line in. I realize you need to, so let's anticoagulate. Again, it is very patient dependent. Yeah, you have to personalize your approach, don't you? Uh, when is something more than simple anticoagulation needed? We talked a little bit about IBC filters, and I think I'd like to come back to that in a moment. But what about we have we do have some technologies now that we can stick catheters in lice clots and even the venous system. We have devices where we can retrieve those clots and do uh, catheter-based embolectomies. Um, and those that's more certainly more attractive than cutting open a vein and doing an open embolectomy. So with these in the area of these kind of minimally invasive options, um, what 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 do you, what's the role here? When when do we consider clot retrieval as being important to consider as a stronger option? I think we have to decide what we're trying to treat. Um, if someone has phlegmasia, then it's what a is no- now not only people phlegmasia. Oh sure. Yeah, so like uh, if we're a med student here listening, phlegmatia, what is phlegmatia sorelia dolens, right, is the Latin name for this thing. What is that? So we talk a lot about arterial occlusion and ischemia secondary to arterial occlusion, stopping the inflow. Blood can't get to the leg, and so the leg doesn't have enough blood and it suffers. Now on the venous side, when a vein becomes occluded with clot, most of the time, because venous collateral circulation is, generally speaking, much more robust, uh, the leg is fine. On occasion, the venous outflow is so impeded by clot burden that you start to get venous congestion. The leg looks big and purple, and when that gets severe enough, the perfusion pressure generated on the arterial side is no longer sufficient to actually perfuse the the tissue. Uh, In other words, you tie off the vein and eventually arterial pressure isn't enough to get the blood through the leg. And in that case, that is a surgical emergency. There are very, very few venous occlusive problems that are surgical emergencies in the extremities, but that's one of them. And in that case, uh, you would treat someone emergently to get rid of the clot as soon as possible to allow circulation to resume. That is one of the rare occasions when an open thrombectomy is warranted, if necessary. We have all kinds of uh, minimally invasive technologies that can, you have the clot retriever, you've got the angiojet, all these things, which can reestablish for the short-term circulation and take a threatened limb back from the brink. The vast majority of cases when you're trying to resolve DVT with any kind of intervention, what you're trying to avoid is actually a longer-term problem, right? It's post-thrombotic syndrome. 
in the trauma patient, because most of the effective solutions usually involve some kind of a lytic, that's not something we do a lot in the acute setting. Um, but the good news is that you can use these solutions up to two weeks out from, from formation of the clot with good effectiveness. And the options are uh, pharmacomechanical thrombectomy or the angiojet. And studies have shown that, uh, shockingly, just because you get a good picture does not mean you get good outcomes. It does not reduce the incident in post-thrombotic syndrome. Catheter-directed therapies, uh, where you infuse a lytic over 48, 72 hours, actually does drop by about half the incidence of um, post-thrombotic syndrome. But these are problems that will make themselves known in the months and years after discharge. So again, in the trauma population, you really have to ask, what am I treating and where on the list of priorities for this patient today does that fall? So I guess it kind of puts all that together. So phlegmatia is basically impending tissue loss because of venous congestion, right? So, yes. and there's, as I understand, there's not a great way to diagnose that. It is still a clinical exam. It's putting smart heads together, who've seen it before, and saying, "Yep, this looks like it's heading the wrong direction. This doesn't." But when you see it, you probably need to do something in the short term to reopen the venous outflow, and then you have this whole downstream, long-term complication risk as well. Um, okay, cool. Uh, so let's let's come back now to IBC filters. And you've talked a little bit about the long bone fractures and uh, your thought process, how it's changed. Because you, for the listeners, you were a vascular surgeon for several years. Mm-hmm. You ended up talking to idiots like myself and Dr. Morrison, who did both and really loved it. And you went back and did a, a surgical critical care fellowship. That's right. So you, as whereas I was a trauma surgeon, then became a vascular surgeon to get to that endovascular specialty, you came the other direction. So you had to, to undo brainwashing in the opposite direction, if you will, about some kind of entities. Um, how has how your perspective on IVC filter changed? Let's expand on that a little bit. And I guess the real question is, who needs an IVC filter as a trauma patient in 2020? The experience has, was both humbling in that I saw how much thought actually went in to the request for an IVC filter in trauma patients. It's not something that was checked off, oh, this patient needs a filter. The trauma surgeons actually think about it. Um, and then from the other side, I'm able to bring to the trauma world the understanding of what effect these filters can have in the longer term. Because I don't know that a lot of trauma surgeons have a lot of experience dealing with uh, a thrombosed or iliocaval occlusion in the long term. And those patients were the bane of my existence when I was a vascular surgeon. They're they extremely so frustrating. Yeah. I think that a patient who has the only absolute strong no questions asked indication for a filter is a patient with an acute DVT or PE who cannot be anticoagulated. I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that. After that, things get a little more soft. In the trauma world, we're a little fortunate in that there is the provoking incident, the acute provoking trauma followed by a period of variability in the coagulability status. And then the patient hopefully levels out. And they're here the whole time, which means that if a patient's high risk for uh, anticoagulation, they can't get anticoagulated, we can put a filter in and actually take it out when they become appropriate for anticoagulation before discharge. Our great failure as a specialty has been failing to remove these. 
Um, that's not to say that in the short term they can't form thrombus. Uh, in trauma patients, we know that almost a third of these filters will, avail- will eventually develop thrombus, and the median time is like eight to 10 days. It's not occlusion, but it is thrombus. Whether that means that they're catching it or it's forming de novo, I don't know. Nobody does. Um, but you can already see that the risk associated with filters is there. So if you can't anticoagulate a patient, um, if they're going back to the OR frequently, if blood loss is a big concern and you can't prophylax them, or if, as with the orthopedic patients, if they are very high risk for a DVT, but if they have a DVT, you know you won't be able to treat it because they're going to be going back and forth to the OR, or because they're losing a lot of blood, I think that's a totally appropriate filter. Or the, uh, I guess I would, the only thing I think would have is if they have adequate prophylaxis, but then have a PE through that. Is that another so, category? What's your thoughts on that? Yes, and also it wouldn't be unusual to have a patient with a PE in the trauma population who you may not actually be preventing another one because of the the IVC filter. Um, One of the uh, surveillance papers, I think this one was out of London, found that about 40% of trauma patients who had PEs did not have DVTs associated with them. Um, And our own Dr. Feliciano actually found similar findings when he was in Indiana. And this is the trauma de novo PE. Hypoperfusion, overall hypercoagulability, Probably not hemodynamically significant, but it does happen. So they're forming primarily in the lungs. Then. Possibly, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I've certainly seen that described. Yeah, and that's a, that's another clinical entity challenge. Uh, let's. You talked about removable filters. This is a new thing in the last, you know, ten to fifteen years, right? And they've really come to market. We got several different options. It's a very slick thing. I think they're fun to take out, uh, as fun as they are to put in, um, and certainly. And when it goes well, it's really gratifying. But when should we take those filters out? So if they're temporary, when, when, how temporary should they be? Should we take them out before they leave the hospital? Do we need a pathway to capture them when they leave the hospital, recognizing that trauma patient follow-up is not uh, historically be- the best in terms of surgical specialties? I think that we should not put them in without having a plan in place for when we're going to take them out. And it varies by patient. If I know that someone is going to go to rehab, and they're going to be immobile for a terribly long time. Uh, if they have, for instance, chronic acute on chronic subdural, something like that, I know that they're not going to be able to be anticoagulated. Or if I know that there's a good chance that they might declare themselves later on, oh, I can't anticoagulate them, then leave the filter in. Um, I do think that if someone is able to be anticoagulated and they have a filter and we can't get the filter out immediately, they should be anticoagulated as soon as possible. Because that filter is, like I said, it's a nidus for thrombus formation. So the patient's been in the hospital, let's use an example, I've been here a while and you they had a high-grade liver injury and that was deemed a high too high bleeding risk to do anticoagulation, even at 48 hours, right? They still, you maybe even started prophylactic and they had a little drop in their hemoglobin and you said, this isn't working, we need to do a filter. But now they've been here a week. Uh, their, their liver injury is starting to heal. They've had no more bleeding. They've got this filter in, and the trauma team thinks that you can start restart anticoagulation. Can we take that patient's filter out in hospital? If I get a duplex that shows that there's no clot 
in the legs if they are hemodynamically stable. They've had all the surgery that they're probably going to have. Yeah, we can take it out. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think my practice certainly has changed to get more aggressive in those settings because these patients do go out and it's hard to get them back sometimes, Mm -hmm. despite our best efforts. Let's shift now to pulmonary pulmonary embolism, right? The downstream worst case scenario for some of these things. And certainly not all these are fatal. Some of them we scratch our heads and say, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. But a lot of folks have espoused the use of particular scoring systems to help uh, stratify uh, the risk associated with both pulmonary embolism outcomes and to guide their subsequent treatment. And there's a lot of them out there. I've heard Bavona score, uh, Geneva score, the Wells score. And you can see all these are used in the literature. What's rough characterization of the difference between them? Are they all the same thing said in different ways? And which one do you use and, and maybe why if you have a favorite? So Wells, Geneva, they're kind of tricky because they were made for the general hospital population. And as soon as you say, oh, I've got a trauma patient, well, you're kind of pegging the needle on most of the scoring systems. The one that was developed uh, for trauma patients is the risk assessment profile. And even that, um, let me put it this way. Before I sat down to talk to you, Uh, I knew that this would come up. And I said, let's say hypothetically, I, a fairly healthy 42-year-old man, was in the hospital, in the trauma bay, and I had AIS scores of one. Okay, so minor injuries across the board. Just scratches, you know, maybe a couple of lacs. And someone put a femoral single lumen catheter in me. Okay. I am now moderate to high risk on the wrap. Trauma patients, just as a population, are extremely predisposed. And when you try to get more granular than that, you end up with conflicting results. Um, Dr. Feliciano's paper found that TBI long bone fractures were very, very predictive of DVTPE, particularly PE. And a follow-up paper, a retrospective, uh, sorry, a meta-analysis, found that the only thing that was significant, significantly predictive of an elevated risk in PE was a smoking history, which that's the only time I've seen that mentioned. So I think that we have to accept that patients overall in the trauma population are higher risk. So I'm not going to do CTA on everybody. So when, when do we do them? For me, it's a combination of two things that have made that an easy kind of dilemma. The first is that if a patient clinically uh, looks like they might have an acute cardiopulmonary event, PE is instantly at the top of my list. And the second is uh, we have these young people with their ultrasounds tooling around who are able to look at the heart uh, and love to do it and I'm slowly learning how myself. And if they find RV strain, if they show that the TAPSI is below 13 or whatever the current... What's TAPSI? Uh, TAPSI is the tricuspid annular um, something, something, something. It's one of the echo findings that yeah. shows that you have an elevated uh, resistance. So to all the RV tip-offs function. that look at the right ventricular strain, or that right. the right heart is working, push it against something, yeah. and it's not doing it well. It's not doing it well. So these are things that you can get very, very quickly at the bedside. Well, now I have something to go on. So the scores, I I appreciate them in the overall population. I think getting a little more bedside data is probably more important than a screening score. 
Yeah, and I'll be honest. I think it, when you get a patient that, you know, they drop their sats, they get hypotensive, I, that's my go-to. I mean, looking even in a crude way, whether you know what TAPSI is or not, and I don't either. That's why I ask. Uh, I don't use it every day in my vernacular. Uh, looking for that evidence of right heart strain, even in a gross fashion, really becomes a big uh, decision tree for me in terms of do I need to do more than just anticoagulation. So for those, and some patients, fortunately most PE patients don't need more than a supportive care and anticoagulation, but we do have a couple other tools up our, in our sleeve between ourselves, cardiothoracic surgery, kind of within the hospital system itself. So let me throw these at you and I'm gonna ask you what you think the role might be for these in kind of 2020. Let's start with the Hail Mary, the open embolectomy. How often is this done anymore? And uh, the, you know, that's the process. You open the pulmonary artery, you get, you go and you dig out the clot itself. How often is that done and what patients would it be likely to be useful for? When I first came to Maryland, uh, I would say that the cardiothoracic guys were doing probably three to four a week. That was their go-to, and their results were phenomenal. Their mortality was extremely low. And for me, that was kind of a giveaway that maybe we didn't need to be doing that many. But it could also be that they were just phenomenal surgeons. That's very, very rarely performed anymore. I don't see the cardiac guys doing it. What they do instead is that they will place someone on VA ECMO, and they will anticoagulate and wait for function to recover on its own. This does something, first of all, it doesn't place the patient at the risk of, of an open procedure. And second, it offloads the, uh, the heart significantly, and so it no longer has to experience the strain uh, of the clot burden while it lyses the clot itself. So that's kind of the, that's the big one. That's, we call it the PERT team. That's the highest echelon level of, of treatment. Below that, you have catheter-directed thrombolysis. This was something that we were very aggressive about. And these are patients who perhaps needed supplemental oxygen. Um, they were not crashing hemodynamically. They were definitely showing some effects. But they were okay enough that when we infused them with thrombolytics for 48, 72, 96 hours, they could wait that long. And we ended up with beautiful pictures. Mm -hmm. And the data told us that our pictures were beautiful and our outcomes were about the same as just anticoagulation. Yeah. So our current protocol is that if someone is hemodynamically stable and they have a significant clot burden, they have findings on echo consistent with right heart strain, but they weren't crashing to the point where they needed to be put on ECMO, anticoagulate, recheck the echo. If the echo is the same or it's worse, then we go to catheter-directed thrombolysis. If the echo is improving, well, they're getting better with just anticoagulation. So we had, you know, with each of these technologies, a burst of, of aggression, and then we keep falling back to, well, let's anticoagulate, see how they do, and if they do really badly, we have this wonderful bailout of VA ECMO. Yeah, I and you know another thing we talk we we talk about these the cat you can do lysis catheters in in the pulmonary artery you can even some embolectomy devices you can fit up there. But it's always, and I'm always scared of, I haven't seen it before, but I've heard the nightmare stories of the patient's kind of already getting right heart strain and pissed off heart, so to speak, and now you're threading a catheter through the different chambers to get to the pulmonary artery and you can end up in some kind of funky arrhythmia that you don't like and it's hard to get out of. So um, it's not perfusing the patient well and it doesn't end well. 
And that's always a concern. I've not seen it a lot in the patients we've done, but some of that may be selection, that we're selecting the ones that are not the extremes and need to just go on ECMO or go for an open bypass. What's your experience with that? Uh, my experience, in my first six months as, as an attending, I took one of these patients back, and I was, uh, I was perhaps a little bit cocky, and I did run an angiojet up through the RV, and uh, I discovered something that... Afterwards, I realized it was a common complaint, which is that these patients tend to go asystolical when you run the angiojet in the PA. Yeah. Um, as it turns out, the angiojet, for whatever reason, if you're in any kind of major vein, can induce bradycardia, uh, and no one's entirely sure why. That was the first and the last time that I jetted uh, for a PE. The other thing is that the angiojet, wonderful device, uh, it's in first five, seven, ten centimeters are very stiff, and you need something that tracks well. Uh, and I, I can do a lot of things. I cannot easily repair an RV that's been perforated by an anti-jet catheter. Yeah, I mean, even with the lysis catheters, which don't have that bulk and that conformity, I, it uh, there's no free lunch, is there? No, nope, what we no. do. You, so, get, you do get the arrhythmias with the the catheters as well. So let me ask you. So we've kind of covered a lot of stuff and kind of the high, what I think are the high points. Um, there's always minutiae you can get down into. What else big things do you think that we missed relative to to DVTP and IVC filter in the trauma setting? I don't. I don't think that we miss anything. I think that we're appropriately vigilant. Uh, I think that if there's anything that we need to know more about, it is this idea of de novo PE, and something that is applicable to inpatients overall. We don't actually know what the significance is of small peripheral subsegmental PEs. I know that we tend to treat them with alarm as if they were a larger bore vessel, but are they? Are they that important? I'm not sure. And in trauma patients, as opposed to, you know, other medical patients, certainly cancer patients, there is the provoking incident, and so the risk of recurrence is probably much less. Yeah. I, if I had to summarize kind of our discussion today is I kind of viewed getting to pick your brain, which I very much appreciate because you're very smart on this topic. It's a trauma patients are different than anything, any pop patient population. Everything has to be individualized. There's a price to be paid for most of the interventional things potentially, so you have to weigh that risk benefit and that you really got to take each patient as it comes. You can't apply these uh, chest or ACP, a, you know, American Cardi College of Cardiology guidelines willy-nilly without thinking about what else is going on with the patient. Is that I, fair? I think I've given you a bunch of answers that add up to there are no single easy answers. Fair enough. Well, I know uh, I have other questions for you that, that also are difficult, and this is our random question setting, and you're not going to be, um, just because you're my uh, collaborator uh, on this podcast, I'm not going to spare you those questions. So are you ready for your random questions? I am. Uh, are eyebrows facial hair? Uh, I am Indian, and so facial hair, dividing hair on the body into categories mm -hmm. of facial and scalp and body, it's kind of meaningless. We're kind of like werewolves, the men. Your eyebrow, I've seen eyebrows that are in confluence with the hair of the face and even the chin. Yeah, yes, and we're, we're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, so I haven't been able to get to my waxer. So for those of you at home, my eyebrows are in fact continuous with my scalp hair. I'm, I'm getting the old man eyebrows. I get all kind of curly and jump out at things, and it drives my wife nuts. But I told her, for the sake of kind of collegiality and COVID, I'm leaving them alone. I'm going to let those eyebrows hair go. Solidarity. Uh, absolutely. Uh, next question is one I this is I don't know. There's a perfect answer here. Would you rather have skin that changes color based on your emotions, or would you have daily 
rather have daily regenerating tattoos on the visible portions of your body that depict exactly what you did the day before. Everything you did the day before. The like last of you on the toilet doing everything, yeah, whatever. The last thing I need is to walk around with a picture on my body of me sitting on the couch like Al Bundy with a hand on my pants. Okay. So I'm going to go with skin that shows my emotion. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think that's a pretty easy choice. It'd be more entertaining for the tattoo, but I don't think anyone would choose that. You are a, uh, a proud, you're a cat guy. You're a cat owner of two very distinctive types of cats. They are, what kind of breed are they? They are savannas. Savannas, which are behave more like dogs. They're a breed of kind of wild cats several generations mm-hmm. down, and they behave more like dogs than they do cats. I've seen some of your videos. I contend that cats uh, cannot be trusted. Uh, I put them in the same category as squirrels because you can't tell what they're thinking. Clearly, like a dog, you can, right? A dog's wagging his tail or he's got his ears back. A cat, I, I, I can't trust them. But you know what? I'm not going to judge you. Uh, however, in social media, you have video clips of your cats performing some pretty impressive tricks, I think. A lot of leaping and jumping and all kinds of things. You let them walk around on you like it's some kind of Siegfried and Roy amateur hour. <laughs> um, what ultimate trick do you hope that you could teach these devious pets someday? If you had to pick the penultimate trip, would they go and get you a beer? Would they open the door? Would they take dictation? What kind of would be the ultimate trick that you think is realistic? I think that it would be nice if they could pick me up from work. Um, just learn to drive. The challenge for me right now is stopping them from learning to do complex tasks. Um, I don't know if I've told you this. I had to get child locks on all of my cabinets because they were opening them. That's fine. Some cats do that. I had to replace the child locks because they had figured out the mechanism and they're working together to open the first set. That's very impressive. It's a uh, it's a breed of cat that has an intellect, and yours in particular, that I have not seen. So uh, you should put a cam up and see how they're doing it together, or like some kind of security baby cam to see how it's happening. All. I have a camera. They unplug it. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I think your cats are an alien species that are here to take us over. I'm pretty afraid of them, to tell you the truth. Yeah. So... Uh, Lastly, music, right? I always ask everybody because it's kind of a common theme. We all have some music in our lives in some way, or shape, or form, and you uh, you have some musical taste. So what are you listening to these days? What would you recommend as a playlist for the listener today? Um, I fall back to a band from Texas quite often, the old 97s. Uh, they're okay. out of Austin. Is that um, rockabilly kind of stuff? It, yeah. It's kind of alt-country rockabilly. Okay. I'm also extremely fond of Casey Musgraves. Um, her career trajectory has been really interesting to me. Um, I listen to uh, Dime Store Cowboy and um, yep. same trailer, different park. Uh, and she's really kind of... It's nice to see someone go from a teenage artist to like a, an yeah. adult with appropriately complex lyrics. Her husband, whose name escapes me at the moment, is also very good. I've listened to a lot of his stuff, too. Huh. I'll have to look Not as well known as, as the female, as we often are. The women in our lives or the cats in our lives are more famous than we are. But uh, he's also very good. Well, listen, everybody. This has been another episode of the Trauma Podcast. It's just me and Rishi Kundi, the two actually kind of developers and maintainers of this. And the one thing we like to do is hear from the listeners. So we have an email that is set up called thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com. Again, that's all one word, no spaces, all lowercase, thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com. Ping us with suggestions, ideas. Let us know if this is working or not. And uh, give us some thoughts for additional content that we can develop for you. Because we're not making anything from this. uh, And uh, we're not sponsored by anyone. This is just coming out of our own uh, thought processes and ideas. And we enjoy doing it for you, the listener. So let us know how we can serve you best. Thanks again. Thank you, Joe.